Hello and welcome to the Empowered Hormone Podcast, where we pull apart all those taboo topics, periods, parasites, poos, hormones and more. Let's question everything you've been taught about your body. I'm your host, Sheridan Decker, a gin-loving gut health nerd passionate about debunking myths on birth control, period pain and IBS. If you struggle with bloating or your period is less than pretty, then join me as we chat about everything relating to gut and hormone health. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Empowered Hormones podcast. I'm your host, Sheridan Decker, and today I have Todd Mansood here. So it's actually interesting for you guys because this is my only my second male guest. We've almost had 100 episodes, so <laughs> I feel like I'm a little bit biased here, but this is, this is great. So Todd is the resident herbalist at Byron Herbalist. Um, he has a strong passion for herbal medicine and focuses all of his time and studies on gut health, digestive complaints, uh, bacterial overgrowth, and parasite treatment. So thank you so much for coming on today, Todd. Awesome. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. No problem at all. So for those who don't know you, and I know a lot of my listeners probably haven't, you know, maybe heard about your clinic or what you do or a little bit of your story, do you mind jumping into that for us? Yeah, you love to. Yeah, I am Canadian, originally born. I've been in Australia for uh, 20 plus years, came over as a traveler and yeah, met my partner, settled down. And, um, you know, she has been a practitioner for a lot longer than me. She did her degree down in uh, Melbourne. Um, and I didn't, you know, she's kind of pushing me, said, oh, you're interested in plants and, uh, you know, healing. And, you know, it was always like a passion of mine, but I didn't actually really kind of step into it or, or think that I wanted to be a practitioner till I got quite unwell. Mm. We were living in Melbourne, moved up to uh, the Byron region and just did like the classic um, mistake that people who aren't familiar have lived in or aren't from the, uh, the subtropics of the tropics. We were drinking uh, unfiltered tank water, yeah. which is no, no, yeah, no, no, include us onto it. Um, both got quite unwell. My partner bounced back, and for you know reasons that I kind of had to dive into deep, 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 deep kind of holes of research and experiments, uh, didn't bounce back quite as strongly. So yeah, it was a really long health journey and learned a lot along the way. And, um, you know, whether I didn't kind of have the tools to find the support I needed or, um, you know, whether I wasn't kind of open to it, maybe I couldn't afford it. You know, we were students at the time. Yeah. I just wound up treating myself, did a degree so I could uh, learn properly. And uh, yeah, very committed to treating digestive health. That's kind of, it's not all I do, but it's it's like 90, 95% of my practice. Yeah, yeah for sure. Digestive. I feel like a lot of health practitioners, because I'm the same kind of like that 10 year sort of health struggle. We all sort of have struggled with it, couldn't find answers. Often the funds is a big one, like the money to just throw at seeing people and seeing people and like hitting those roadblocks of not seeing good people maybe you know so then you're always throwing money at stuff that you get to a point where you're like I just need to study and research this myself because Mm. I can't just keep throwing money at different people hoping for a new you know outcome Mm. yeah you couldn't agree more it's kind of that perfect storm I'm I'm seeing more and more like chronically unwell patients people that have like 
never been well their whole life for 20 years and frequently with them there's like one problem and then another that contributes and this layer layers of dysfunction um you know whether it's mold SIBO you know uh, head traumas what whatever it is that that leads them to uh, where they're at there at the moment um and yeah it's just the the, the complexity is overwhelming sometimes <laughs> yeah, yeah. For every everyone involved everyone yeah involved. yeah and I feel like it always pushes you to grow as a practitioner as well because no case is ever the same so you're always going oh, we now need to research this or need to look at that or how is SIBO interacting with mould or you're like, there's just no standalone similar cases anymore, it feels like. That's right. Yeah, I agree completely. Keep so your toes. the Byron Herbless or your business, how long has that been around for then? Um, I think we're maybe three or four years. Yeah, I don't, I'm not great at kind of keeping track on time. It's kind of head down. Um a very, uh, I don't know if it's proud, but I'm, I'm, I'm a clinician. I'm not a researcher. I go into the research when I need to, but I've found even kind of like in the past year, busy, busy practice. Um, it's, it's what works. That's really what I'm looking for. And so I find that kind of finding uh, clinicians like the best in the world, learning from them and then using that as a springboard to kind of refine like the pathophysiology or the application, that's where I found the best kind of approach for me. I don't need to rewrite the book. I just want yeah. my patients to get better. That's all I basically want. Yeah. <laughs> How, yeah. If they're feeling better, great. We'll just keep moving. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And your passion is herbs, yeah. So your degree was in naturopathy, that's that correct? No, I'm Western herbal medicine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I've done a ton of biochemistry, really deep, going to be doing of naturopathy at uh, SCU next year. And uh, yeah, going to kind of build that out. But uh, I find that I've had it to go, you know, head a little bit more towards like nutritional biochemistry for patients that can't tolerate herbs. Yeah. That's really where, uh, you know, you've got herbs that you're like, this would cure you if you could tolerate it, but you're reacting to it. So we got to pull it all the way back and maybe fiddle a little bit with kind of uh, leaky gut or some of the detox pathways. That's really where um, some, some patients need to start. Yeah. Patients that can tolerate herbs, that, that's great. But the more I work with chronic health patients, the more sensitive, uh, you, know, you know, the patients are that I'm seeing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So what led you to focus on SIBO? Was that just a natural progression? Or was that something you're just seeing a lot of in clinic? Or was that a particular interest of yours? Yeah, I mean, initially, I was very focused on SIBO because I was running a lot of testing. I still test quite frequently for SIBO, maybe not as thoroughly as I used to. Mm -hmm. um, pretty good at kind of picking whether someone has SIBO from symptoms. Yeah. But I still like to see numbers on a page and I still get it wrong. Um, again, I think a lot of the times when someone's presenting with something that's like obviously SIBO and it's not, uh, could be a failure of the breath testing. It's, it's not a perfect uh, science yet. Or uh, yeah, there's some other um, kind of masqueraders of SIBO. So testing and coming back, like 80% of my patients had, had SIBO. Um, some of them you'd clear it the majority initially you'd clear it and they'd feel better and you'd never hear from them again because they're off living their uh, their best life yeah. um, but the patients that got kind of stuck even when you cleared it still symptomatic 
there's some other reason why, whether it's kind of, you know, morphed into more of that classic irritable bowel syndrome where we can't get like a diagnosis. We don't know why they're experiencing all these digestive health issues um, or whether there's some kind of underlying driver that hadn't been resolved, whether they're relapsing or whether it wasn't SIBO in, in the first place. But yeah, just seeing a lot of it and just diving into it and uh you're very very passionate about the small bowel i think the tide's changing there's been a lot of great kind of educators and people are starting to kind of wake up but uh you know for the longest time the small bowel has been just completely neglected stool testing everyone comes to me who's unwell with the stool test yeah. and you're like there's nothing there like there's no problem that we that explains your symptoms let's look at your small bowel and they come back uh, with like significant SIBO so for those listening who kind of going what are the obvious symptoms of SIBO what things classically are you seeing that you go you know because you as having worked with it for so long and you can probably pick it quite quickly as well in a sense you must have you know five or six off your top of your head that you go this 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 that's probably SIBO that's right. Yeah. And probably the big caveat, but you, yeah, you nailed it. My, my intake form, I can look at the intake form before I see someone and I'm like, we're going to be exploring this pretty kind of thoroughly. Um, the biggest one, the most obvious one is bloating and visible distension. Um, sometimes it's permanent bloating and visible distension, which has a lot to do with, um, with methane SIBO, which we're going to be talking about today, strong passion of mine. Um, or it could be this um, significant worsening within like an hour. I stretch that out to two hours now, depending on their kind of motility, how quickly things are moving through the digestive tract. But um, if you're noticing the big headline with SIBO is if you go from your baseline to a significant worsening of symptoms, kind of doesn't matter what symptom it is within an hour or two after meals, doesn't have to be every meal, but it has to be pretty reliable. We're going to be looking at the small bowel and, and evaluating it. Uh, questions, um, how people are progressing on treatment plans and uh, testing is uh, almost mandatory. I do treat some students and some young younger folks that don't have that. Uh, they're a bit cash poor. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a bit flexible but I'm, I'm pretty strict on just basic testing to get some answers on, uh, on their symptoms. What do you reckon the accuracy of the SIBO testing is? Like, do you find that like it's a pretty accurate test? Because sometimes, like, I don't know, I was listening to a practitioner I sort of know the other day and he was sort of going on about, see, because I use a Bing clinic and then he was talking about going, oh, you know, it's not always that accurate or this and that or even stool tests. They vary so much from company to company. And I'm like, mm. well, they seem like when I suspect someone's got it and I send it off for testing and it comes back positive, then I'm kind of going, well, I'm believing that. But do you find that most of the time it's pretty accurate? Yeah, I mean, the way that I kind of communicate it to patients is there's a bit of an art and a science to interpreting uh, SIBO breath tests. So if you wanted to be, and this is where we're like value for money, if you wanted to be the most thorough, uh, thoroughly evaluated for SIBO, you do something like a lactulose breath test as a baseline, fructose breath test, um, just to see whether someone's reacting to that simple sugar, and then a glucose breath test. Mm -hmm. 
So I have played around with all three. That becomes quite um, cost prohibitive. I think it's about kind of 500 plus or so dollars. And I'm always questioning, how's that going to change my uh, treatment plan? Um, even if it comes back negative and I still strongly suspect SIBO, I wouldn't circle back and test again. I would run it through like a six week, eight week uh, treatment plan, spend you know comparable amounts of money on uh, the plan and see how people feel. Um, I have played around with not testing. I am firmly in the testing camp at the moment, strong, strong testing uh, advocate. Um, but I'll start with a baseline of lactulose. And if people are reacting to, um, you know, simple sugars, fruits, they're like, oh, I can't kind of go anywhere near a mango or an apple, then I'll, I'll tack on the fructose. I have actually completely dropped using glucose breath testing. And this is so interesting. You know, you talk to people who are like so deep in the in the science and they're like, yeah, but, you know, they're kind of you know, um, um, false positives versus false negatives, blah, blah, blah. It's, I totally get all that. That's great. We let that guide our way. But in practice, what's going to move the needle? Lactulose breath testing, you can get more false positives because it's traveling through into the large bowel, but you're using transit time and you're using symptoms. And the, that's the whole, the history, how are they feeling now, symptoms and the testing and then how they progress on a treatment plan. Yeah. Um, so yeah, art and science, tracking transit time, lactulose as a baseline, fructose as a, an, an optional, maybe 25% of my patients get the fructose uh, lab tacked on. Yeah, yeah, okay, that that explains a lot and that makes sense to me now because I, yeah, I generally see people doing the baseline SIBO breath test or if they're coming to you with the results, I've done the one and, you know, most of the time it's positive. It's very rare that I see one that's negative because most people aren't going to test if they don't have a lot of bloating. Like they'll be like, well, what's the point really? So mm -hmm. you, you tend to see that. So when we're talking about SIBO, we're talking about there's different types of SIBO. Can you touch on that briefly and then why, you know, methane dominant cases are something that you're, you're really passionate about? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so the three that we see and that are kind of uh, studied, and remember the, these are studied, we do have kind of peer-reviewed science in quality journals. A lot of the time, like a gastroenterologist would say, look, I don't believe in it, or I've never heard of it. Um, they got to catch up. Like it's, it's definitely in the science yeah. and um, patients can get very confused and they can lose a lot of momentum when there's a, a specialist who, um, who should definitely know about this stuff and, uh, you know, isn't, isn't across even the basics of it. Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's an acronym, SIBO. Um, the more common one is hydrogen dominant. In my practice, I see a lot more of methane, maybe because I'm so passionate about it and just talk about it. And I probably see a lot more methane dominant SIBO because it can be a lot uh, more stubborn. Mm -hmm. Patients can be looking for answers and going through kind of the first kind of protocol or first approach, um, failing, failing, failing. Um, so the hydrogen dominant, that's more uh, strongly associated with diarrhea, bloating, distension, strong kind of reactions to foods. Methane is very similar, except instead of fast transit time and diarrhea, loose stools, it would be more commonly constipation. Doesn't always have to be. And I've seen some like mega methane, like 100 parts per million off the charts, loose stools. Yeah. 
and they're just like, oh, I'm not bloated, so I'm not going to do a breath a breath test. And when we finally get the breath test, it's like, okay, there's the issue. And um, there's a few kind of pieces there that get a bit technical. Um, the third type of SIBO, which um, you know we don't we can't get any data on here in Australia, it's very very frustrating, is hydrogen sulfide SIBO, and it's it's difficult to treat. Sulfur intolerances are extremely common. I do a lot of urine testing. I do a lot of organic acids testing. And you can see as part of that kind of sulfur metabolism pathway um, that there's, there's issues around, um, you know, suspected enzyme function. That's always the suspicion. Um, the fourth one, I kind of lump it into SIBO is CFO. And again, that's where an organic acids test is going to be really helpful um, if you get a, if you get a negative on a SIBO breath test and you're like, okay, it's not SIBO, you've been properly evaluated, but they're still presenting with SIBO symptoms. Um, the organic acids test, uh, it shows a lot of fungal overgrowth in my patient population. Would you do that sooner than you would do a stool test? If, if money grew on trees or mm. if someone was really unwell, again, we want to kind of choose where we spend our money, um, particularly if you're presenting bloating and distension after foods, mm. a change in bowel uh, patterns, whether it's diarrhea or constipation or both, you can have mixed SIBO for sure. That's, that's relatively common. Um, and, you know, kind of any worsening of symptoms after, after foods. Um, SIBO breath test, mandatory. Um, if you have been unwell for longer than a year and there are some kind of unclear symptoms, a lot of joint pain, a lot of kind of achy muscles, uh, detox symptoms, skin health issues, I have been running uh, organic acid testing on, on anyone that can afford it, uh, Yeah, particularly if it's become chronic. I treat a lot of chronic patients, so... Yeah, if it's a, it's an easy kind of rider, it's cruisy, um, you know, they're kind of younger, it's a kind of new symptom, maybe you'll kind of uh, skimp or skip some of these more advanced testing. Yeah, yeah. still testing too. I use a lot yeah. of still testing. Yeah, yeah, I remember like back in my day when I was really unwell, so whatever I was, 18, 19, I had all those conditions and I was seeing like my first sort of functional medicine practitioner and doing the organic acids test, the OST test. I was like, wow, it was so fascinating. Like it was so interesting because, I mean, I'd done yeah. the SIBO and I'd done the stool stuff and kind of like there's missing pieces to this puzzle and I did the oats as well and I was just like, wow, this is, it's, I mean, it's not something I work commonly because I haven't done enough studies on it to feel really competent in feeling like I could get you value for money out of it. But I think it's mm. such, it's such a worthwhile test. Like it's got so mm. much good information in it. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's a minefield for sure. And you got to kind of, you know, dive so deep into, uh, you know, kind of continual education, but the, the O test has changed the game really for the chronic, like mold affected, sears, um, autoimmune. Um, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've seen, you know, you look at someone's, um, a lot of people come to me with like a GI map or a complete microbiome mapping. Um, I have my preference on the two, but I'll, I'll kind of keep it uh, to those two. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but um, the, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, there's some issues, but it doesn't explain why you have kind of Hashimoto's and your antibodies are through the roof. And, um, you know, they'll come back with something like green mold actually growing in their digestive tract. Can't pick it, can't guess it, oxalates through the roof, couldn't have guessed that until you test. 
Um, again, chronically unwell, urine testing, organic acid testing is a, a really, really um, great way to spend your money. Sure. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Like phenomenal, but, but crazy. Like it'd be, oh, I'd be so complex to treat then if you've got, you know, the mold aspect and the SIBO type aspect as well. Like if you're, I don't know, I feel like it'd be such a, maybe not slow, but such a long process to work through those layered infections. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing you gotta be, you know, some patients they'll, um, you know, either want kind of email support. I strictly do not provide email support. I made that mistake when I was uh, just getting started. Miscommunications, no kind of value. I'm kind of at, you know, the the end of an email every time. Um, so kind of quality of life, um, you lose, lose a bit of that. But if we're talking about approaches, um, the kind of trifecta that I find for, you know, moderately complex down to kind of more simple cases, would be custom formulated herbs. So we make the majority, maybe like 60 or 70% of our, our herbs in house, make them extremely strong. They taste terrible. There's no way to make them taste good. Uh, try and mix a little bit of licorice in there when people can tolerate it. But um, prebiotic fibers, which we're gonna chat about today and very, very targeted probiotics. Um, and that's that's really the trifecta that moves the needle for a lot of patients that have been kind of stuck in their symptoms. Yeah. Um, yeah so that would be it. Um, targeting mold initially would be um, not kind of 100% essential, but it's definitely with SIBO, I'm starting to look at it more as like a symptom rather than like this disease. Obviously, it, you know, drives symptoms, but there's some reason why the small bowel has uh, allowed for bugs to grow where they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of these kind of root causes, um, particularly if we're talking about methane SIBO that we can talk about today um, that I would look for only if you're having trouble treating it which again a lot of my patients they're like you know frontline herbs frontline probiotics prebiotics didn't really help so you're looking for these other reasons why things are stuck where they shouldn't be yeah yeah so your first line of treatment for SIBO and metho methane dominant SIBO is like you said your herbal blends that you'd make up yourself and your prebiotics and your probiotics that's kind of your base sort of initial treatment yeah. And again, depending what I think is contributing to the methane SIBO. And again, you know, if we're thinking about kind of mold, for example, mold can kind of dysregulate your motility in your gut. A lot of things can. And, um, you know, kind of pays to know what is dysregulating the motility. But even if you're just like, we know your motility is slow, mouth to toilet bowl, rather than how many times you're having a bowel movement, which is just a huge, huge pearl there. Um, if we know it's slow, then treating that even before you go after the bug with uh, antimicrobials like herbs that will kind of reduce the number, getting that motility, passing things through faster can really help with um, setting the stage and um, creating a more healthy environment so that methane doesn't grow. It doesn't yeah. like it when things are going quickly. Yeah. So what are some of those things that will help speed up motility if someone's motility is quite slow? What's really supportive there? Yeah. Yeah. So initially, um, like well-tolerated prebiotic fibers. I've got my favorite one back here. I've got a little kind of a, a prop for you. Partially hydrolyzed uh, guar gum. Yeah. yeah. It's Love just... It. 
more people need to know about it. You know, we should kind of be, uh, you know, sounding the uh, the bell there. It's it's beautiful. It's low FODMAP. It's well tolerated. It can cause constipation in some yeah. patients with, with methane SIBO. And you're, you're walking this little line long term. One of the major kind of goals. And, you know, if we talk about root causes, one of the major goals is to increase butyrate production in the large bowel. Even if we're talking about small bowel, right? Because we need your your entire digestive tract needs to be balanced. Mm. Um, so initially, we're looking at the stomach. If you've got low stomach acid, it's going to set you up for SIBO. If you've got H. pylori, that's going to set you up for SIBO. If you're taking acid blockers, it's going to set you up for SIBO. Very yeah. important. <laughs> yeah. But um, on the other side, increasing butyrate by feeding beneficial bugs, healthy bugs. Um, and getting into uh, the literature, it's um, Clostridia cluster 14A. Um, so big, big mouthful there. And, you know, some patients can get a little bit confused. They're like, ooh, I thought a lot of the kind of Clostridia bugs weren't so helpful. There's only just a small subset of Clostridia bugs. And they've even renamed the Clostridia difficile to Clostridioides. It's, it's not even in the Clostridia genus anymore. So C. diff is, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's related. I'm sure it's kind of closely related to the Clostridia cluster, but uh, there's a bunch of butyrate producers. Yeah. Uh, so important to feed them up. And um, the large bowel is so darn complex and there's a lot of interplay uh, I used to do a lot of testing looking at the entire kind of bacterial balance. Mm. Um, I saw a lot of very low bifidos. Bifidos don't actually make up a whole lot. Bifidobacteria, sorry. <laughs> For <Yeah>. the listener, <laughs> I thought you nodding. Um, they don't make a whole lot of your, your gut, but they, they can be seen as a bit of like a keystone species. Really helpful. It's like a primary degrader. And there's this kind of cause and effect from... Um, you know, fermenting fibers, which is what our gut is kind of made to do, um, producing metabolites or byproducts that then get kind of consumed to produce more byproducts. Uh, butyrate is just huge. Uh, there's a few studies, not a whole lot, more kind of clinical experience where it kind of opposes methane. And the more you can get your butyrate up, the less you'll see that methane uh, production in the large bowel could have things to do with gut pH. I think that's definitely part of it. Yeah. Um, but uh, prebiotic fibers, definitely somewhere to start. Probiotics, there are a few probiotics that have been shown to be helpful to reduce the bug, but I don't even think about methane SIBO like that unless I need to. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to change the uh, gut motility, so how quickly things are moving through. I'm trying to empty the bowels for, for methane SIBO patients that are constipated. And then I'm asking, how much better do you feel? And for the majority of patients with methane SIBO, getting the motility up and getting the bowels empty, their symptoms improve like, dramatically. Sometimes they resolve. So we don't even have to actually go after that bug. We can just change the uh, ecosystem. Wow, that's amazing. That's yeah, <laughs> just by yeah, just by getting things moving and oh, what a difference. So then dietary wise early on in the piece, are you using classically the biphasic type diet principles or not at all? No, almost not at all. Yeah, particularly for methane. 
what I like to do, I like to kind of let symptoms guide the way. I've got kind of like a FODMAP light kind of uh, part of my treatment plan that I'll that I'll spell out. But I've I've seen it so clearly. SIBO in general, I think she was mixed SIBO. Um, a patient had gone on like a like a very strictly low FODMAP diet for about seven years, and anytime and almost symptom resolution anytime she ate FODMAPs like major symptoms bloating distension loose stools joint pain headaches you know anxiety um after after eating that that meal and uh you know it was early in the day and was like well maybe we should run a SIBO test and she had like maybe not the worst but a very significant um SIBO uh you know positive test and uh, that was very clear you see it in the literature as well Low FODMAP diets I haven't found to be curative. Mm-hmm. And I think most practitioners are, are across that. It just yeah. improves their symptoms. There's there's the knock-on effect. Again, you can use this patient as a case study, but it's pretty clear. Um, low FODMAPs can, uh, long-term, they can kind of, um, you, you're not feeding the beneficial bugs like you do with the, uh, the guar gum. And then you get this, um, you, people kind of dig themselves deeper and deeper into um, uh, digestive dysfunction that you have to kind of pull them back out of over time. Yeah. The only way, like the only time I've seen them really good is that if I use them early on when someone's super symptomatic and, you know, adding in some prebiotic fibers and things, but the people I treat who've been on low FODMAP for years, they, they're the hardest to treat because they're so Mm. like, so sensitive to FODMAP. So as soon as they add in, whereas most people kind of then transition off and naturally transition off because who wants to stick to this strict list forever anyway. So after six weeks, even without practitioner guidance they're slowly adding in their favorite foods again to their own kind of tolerance and sort of drift off it whereas mm. these other people you see me like years on like a low mm. FODMAP diet and they're like I just can simply cannot reintroduce foods and I'm like oh you've got so much like in some ways I find it easier to curb back a really overactive microbiome then you've got one that's so i don't know like so restricted to to try and grow it is is really mm. tricky mm, mm. tricky and time consuming i mean yeah. some yeah yeah pulling pulling someone out of that is yeah it takes time and that, that was the little kind of comment on the guar gum you know patients got partially hydrolyzed very important it can't be just straight guar gum but um patients come to me they say look i've tried that didn't help made me constipated and it's unusual, and this is definitely thanks to uh, a lot of kind of uh, ongoing mentorship with uh, Dr. Jason Horlack, oh, just yeah. the guru of digestive health. Amazing. Uh, yeah, he's the pioneer. That's why I say, like, I'm not a researcher. I'll just I'll let him do that and yeah. kind of learn learn from uh, learn from what he what he's kind of gaining from that literature. Um, and then how does it help in practice? That's the big kind of that's the most important thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, winding it all the way back to a pinch working it up two pinches, three pinches. Now I'm constipated. So stick with two pinches until your digestive health and your microbiome can catch up and kind of grow to accommodate those fermentable fibers that you've been restricting for however long, the longer, I totally agree that the, the, the harder it is and the longer it will take to kind of start that small then just like, yeah. 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 Pinch sometimes. And this is really like, you know, maybe you know, on one hand, the amount of patients, but just, you know, dabbing your finger and going all the way down to just the grains on uh, on one hand, one finger. 
Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. So if someone's then got really resistant, like um, methane dominant SIBO, so you've done your classic kind of prebiotics, probiotics, herbal stuff, you do commonly mm. see it either coming back or just being quite resistant to treatment or is it usually quite, uh, what's the word, like it just adheres to treatment, like how resistant is it? Yeah, sometimes, and I've been kind of like evolving the uh, protocols and the the approaches. Depends on the patient and the data, um, but um, it used to be a lot higher. It used to be around kind of twenty five percent of my methane patients would be treatment resistant. Thankfully, that number has uh, you know decreased. Might be around kind of ten percent now with these kind of new new approaches, second third line therapies. And, you know, the big thing is if, if someone's coming to me and they've been working on their gut and they've tried these things, that's what we're going to spend most of our time talking about. What have you done? How did you feel? How did you tolerate it? And if there was no significant improvement and they're trialing therapeutic doses for a significant amount of time, we're going to pivot. We're going to be looking for other reasons. Mm. And one of the biggest things, well, there's a few, but, but, but one of the biggest things that just came to mind now, just because I um, just spoke to her this morning, poor bioflow, poor bioflow. And I, oh, there's one study that I've found and I don't really like looking for studies to prove a theory. I want to see people improve. But poor bile flow, fat in the stool, high steatocrit. Um, you might even get a little bit more kind of fancy with people who have real kind of gallbladder issues, like the HIDA scan. Maybe two patients have done that in the past. That's that's very kind of uh, advanced testing. Um, that 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 can be that can strongly influence the amount of methane that's allowed to grow in the small bowel. And your bile is actually antimicrobial. Like I said, there's one study showing that actual bile acids can reduce methane, um, but it's linking that whole thing up. So again, it's similar to motility with methane, slow motility, methane's going to go up and methane going up is going to slow motility. So you wind up things worsening over, over a time period, years for some patients, decades for some patients. Um, with bile flow, we're looking at the liver, we're looking at the gallbladder, it's getting dumped in the small bowel, right? So you have that kind of little uh, trinity of uh, cause and effects. But then the problem is um, SIBO and the bacterial overgrowth and the endotoxins, lipopolysaccharides, these kind of immunogenic um, byproducts or part of the kind of cell wall of some bacteria, not so much methane, but the, the bugs that kind of live under methane, they're going to go on and impact the, uh, the liver. The liver takes first pass and it's gonna get knocked around. So you see a lot of these issues even, and this is the big thing, this is huge. It's probably more for clinicians than patients, but even if you're constipated, you can still have poor fat absorption. Classic pictures would be like greasy stools, uh, floating stools, a bit of a sheen on the toilet bowl, nausea after fats. You can test someone's stool that's constipated, maybe having a bowel movement once or twice a week, and you st still see a lot of that um, you know, steatorrhea and that fat in the stool. Um, so that's a really big one, normalizing bile flow, normalizing gut motility. And then the last one, which we talked about was butyrate. You can test for butyrate on uh, a stool test. You can look at someone's history of antibiotics that knocks around a lot of those butyrate producers. Um, and then you're looking for strategies to increase butyrate, trying to get the body to increase, increase its own butyrate. 
um, and then sometimes just supplementing with butyrate and seeing if that changes the, um, yes. the picture. I'm going to ask if you ever supplement with it because I had a client come to me once and I never have before. I usually use PSG or, you know, just working on the microbiome, but she came to me and she had butyrate, which came from um, another practitioner. And I actually haven't seen that before. Is that commonly something you do or is that last resort or what's the mm. yeah yeah i'm using it more commonly now again because i i'm treating last resort patients a lot yeah. more um i wouldn't do it initially i'm always trying to kind of uh just retrain the body to do what it needs to do so that you don't need to be kind of like reliant on like a butyrate supplement yeah. but i've learned this the hard way there have been a few patients um, that have been through such extensive antibiotic um, protocols triple therapy i feel like i kind of have to coax people off the ledge i treat a lot of people come to me and they want to treat blastocystis yeah. a lot of them have come to me and they've done triple therapy three four times diminishing returns like their their symptoms are getting worse and their guts getting worse and they just keep going after this bug again and again and again with no no improvements a worsening um and there's one patient i can think of and i've been working with them forever thankfully his symptoms are like for the most but we're maintenance therapy we have been for forever and just kind of whatever comes up we're, we're treating but uh back in the day tested him saw low butyrate on a stool test, saw low beneficials on a stool test, fed them up with every type of prebiotic fiber, saw mm. some improvements in digestion, guar gum, goss, foss, yeah. acacia fiber, like the list never ended, just went through them all. And every time we tested, the butyrate wouldn't shift. And so my conclusion there, and there is, again, a little bit this decent literature to support the thinking is that the, the microbiome, even if the bugs are there, maybe they've been wiped out and, and they're no longer there. But even if they're there, they become so deranged by the anti uh, antibiotic protocols that they can't actually kind of perform their like normal function or healthy function, yeah. the better way to put it. Um, there's a lot of redundancy in the gut, in, in butyrate producers, like um, the Clostridia 14a cluster, there's so many different butyrate producers, but if they've all been dysregulated or damaged by uh, antibiotic exposure, you can just feed people up on prebiotics and, and nothing kind of changes on that front. Where... It's rare, it's not common. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How long <laughs> would you expect to see someone on, say, something like PHGG before you start to see a shift in a change, not only symptom-wise, but in that microbiome? Like are we looking three months, six months, 12, like? Yeah, again, if no, if it, there's not like significant, like triple therapy or, you know, some sometimes like uh, teenagers get put on antibiotics for acne for extended period, like three to six to 12 months, Ugh. Um, Lyme disease, you know, doxycycline, IV, like there's, there's, there's a lot of kind of exposure, but if there isn't just this massive exposure to antibiotics in their history, I would be looking for significant improvements in the microbiome at, uh, you know, like the two, two month mark. I wouldn't spend money on the one month mark to retest, but um, you, you'd want to be seeing a pretty significant shift if you're feeding the specific bugs that need support what they love to eat and yeah. i don't actually get that technical on my it doesn't you know that that's why i've stopped doing these kind of complete bacterial composition studies because i was finding okay great 
you've got this kind of overgrowth and you've got this deficiency. I'm just going to do the same thing that I was going to do without the lab. So yeah. it didn't change my treatment. Uh, so yeah, I kind of stopped recommending that for most patients. There's a few caveats there, mainly around the hydrogen sulfide picture, but that's uh, probably a uh, conversation for another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. No, that's that's interesting because you, yeah, you kind of think about that microbiome going, okay, well, how long has it taken to get to that point, to overgrow to that point or to be undergrown or stripped back to that point? And people always want to know, like, how long is this going to take? And you come up with, mate, like, I don't how long's a you know piece of string kind of thing in a sense but if you you sort of go well within two months we do like to see that shift in it then at least you sort of got a little bit of a time frame on it I suppose mm, yeah absolutely and you know so microbiome improvements and symptom improvements don't always correlate um again that's why I don't do we spend like serious money on, on on testing the microbiome as much as I did I would be looking, depending on like the complexity of the case, the patients that know they're complex, they tell you that when you see them, they say, I can't tolerate it. I can't take anything. You know, I, I don't give me herbs because I won't tolerate them. I can't take uh, probiotic blends. Um, so you say, all right, look, it's going to take time to kind of get everything stable. But the patients that come to you that are like, look, I'm bloated, I'm distended, I'm constipated, I wake up distended that's a classic sign of methane SIBO um, and that's that's all about that's all about transit time things are still tracking through and they're fermenting and yeah you're, you're bloated so the patients that are waking up distended visibly distended they say look I almost look pregnant that's that's my kind of picture um, and some of them are less reactive to foods and I find that on the methane front still they can do the bloating and distension kind of worsening symptom but a lot of them are just stuck, sluggish, nothing's moving. Um, if, if, if there's nothing extremely complex or chronic or low and slow, let's phase things in one at a time, I am looking for significant improvements every um, five to six weeks, every time someone runs through uh, a bottle of herbs. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, so you wait till they get to kind of the bottom of it, as long as they yeah. can tolerate uh, tinctures, um, yeah. you reconnect. And if we haven't seen... I mean, at bare minimum, like a 15 to 20% improvement in, in yeah. global symptoms, then uh, you're looking for reasons why poor bioflow, low butyrate that we can't get up with the uh, fermentable fibers, um, motility. Motility can be hard to improve. The prokinetic herbs, prokinetic uh, supplements, um, they, they, they can they can take time and, and sometimes you just need to kind of stack them all on top to get some momentum. Is there anything nutritional wise, like as in fiber wise from a diet or things that you're really big yeses for you that you're like, you know, I, I really strongly encourage these foods and I don't need these foods because when you sort of got FODMAP or biphasic, you have quite clear guidelines. It's quite mm. easy. But, you know, do you have yeah. some things that you go, I really do eat these things, don't eat those things? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I want people to eat whole foods. I mean, that's the big thing. So I don't go as strict. I'm pretty flexible and I kind of meet patients where they are. And, you know, if we need to, that's when I get a little bit stricter and okay, let's cut this out. But um, that's the big thing. And, you know, it's, it's a tough conversation to have, but like as a patient, this is your responsibility. This is your problem. And like, we're all here as practitioners to help and like, I'm very like compassionate and empathetic and, and kind of like, you know, staying up late nights and like kind of grinding to get, uh, get that, get that answer. 
but um, the responsibility is on you. So I'm going to meet you where you're at. And if we need to be a bit firmer on recommendations, like, okay, maybe let's take a month off alcohol or, you know, maybe let's uh, maybe stop eating out uh, as, as commonly. Yeah. Um, so the big ones for me, particularly on the methane front, walking that, you know, tightrope between, you know, the, the fiber, so the prebiotics, you know, particularly the guar gum, they tend to be well tolerated, but more of the kind of broader fibers that tends to be the long-term cure for methane SIBO. And we're trying to keep the bowels moving. We're trying to keep the transit time nice and fast. I find that grinding your own flaxseed can just be such a game changer. And yeah. you'd probably be onto that with the, yeah. uh, the hormones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, that's the insoluble side of things. So a lot of insoluble fiber, um, but uh, you know, the, most of the prebiotics are uh, are insol uh, sorry soluble fibers. We start there, and then when they can, bringing in some more of these insoluble fibers to um, you know bulk out the stools, keep things moving. Uh, ground flax seeds the first place to start. Green banana flour, I've, I've seen that be a really big one. So even just eating a banana that's less ripe, even though that's less pleasant, um, that could be a big one. Uh, a lot of the kind of polyphenols, I've seen um, good improvements. A lot of the berries eat the rainbow. But I mean, I'm, I'm treating a lot of patients who are hyper, they've got tons of food sensitivities, oxalates, salicylates, histamine, and so we're, we're trying not to restrict. We're trying to keep yeah. the food on the plate as much as we can. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that that makes sense. That's been um, super helpful. Well, I think we covered quite a bit of stuff there that we're going to talk about. Is there anything else that you think is worth mentioning? Ooh, good question. Yeah, I mean, particularly on the methane front, I think the, the, the biggest one is that there are some things that you want to persist with longer. Well, that's probably the biggest one. And I have this conversation with patients, particularly when they're like, man, I'm like 80, 90% better. I'm feeling good. I'm getting back to eating what I, you know, was triggering me before. Persist with treatment longer than you think you should. And so that might mean an extra bottle of herbs. Maybe we're pulling back on some of the uh, digestive herbs and bringing in some adaptogens or treating some of these other symptoms that might have been part of the um, original presentation. But just a little bit more coverage can go a long way. And the most frustrating thing for the patient and you know myself as a clinician is, is patients yo-yoing. Yep, feeling great. Stop everything. Regress. Uh, yeah, feeling great. And you just kind of have to pull them back out every time. And um, persisting a little bit like a maintenance plan that's working on um, gut motility, keeping up with those fibers a little bit longer. Like, look, I'm 100%. I might actually drop the dose a little bit. Fine. Don't drop it completely. You just kind of taper off these uh, active therapies a little bit slower. Watch for any symptom flares. And if you can get on it quickly, before you regress completely, it tends to be a lot cheaper and faster to uh, to resolve those symptoms. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, rather than kind of regressing to uh, square one. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense because I just think, yeah, as soon as someone starts to feel good sometimes and the hormones have can be the same and you kind of like, oh, I don't, you know, need to eat as many fresh veggies or do this or do that as much or whatever and we kind of drop the ball a bit or life gets stressful or, you know, mm. you just start overdoing it again and then all of a sudden your adrenals are, you know, under the pump a bit and your hormones are playing around and your liver and your gut and it all just feels a bit like whatever so yeah you're right staying on top of things is super super important um well thank you so much for today I really appreciate it I honestly I love your work I think you're amazing I think that you know the work you do with is incredible so for those listening the two best places to find you correct me if I'm wrong is your website so www.byronherbalist.com.au which Mm -hmm. I will link in um That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. That's the one. Yeah. Byronherbalist.com.au. That's right. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty much the hub. I mean, yeah. try and I don't even really, I don't have enough time to keep up with anything else, but um, if you yeah, if you're on oh, YouTube, the YouTube channel, I'm putting out more video um, content and yeah, that, that's a big one. You have a podcast? One. No podcast. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Too much work. I know, I know. But those listening, um, his blog posts are amazing as well. And I've sent them to some of you, but definitely the blog post um, is good. And I know you're on Instagram, byron.herbalist, but you're probably not as active on there as you are other places. No, no. The hub's the website and yeah, everything that's kind of meaningful is going to be there. And um, yeah, there's a little bit of a wait to see me um but uh you know that that's kind of where we're at right now and um you can just kind of reach out to the admin team or um there's like a booking online as well a lot of digestive health and methane's really mm, it's probably about 50 percent of my practice at the moment just because it can be so stubborn yeah yeah awesome well thank you so much todd i really appreciate you and i really appreciate your time awesome thanks for having me it's been Thank you for listening to another episode of the Empowered Hormone Podcast. If you know a female who needs some empowerment, please forward, repost, tag or share and let's get women talking.